0: You are listening to the Oddities of Violence podcast, a podcast about ideas and events from the margins of terrorism, genocide, and the philosophy of violence. This podcast is recorded at the CJSW 90.9 FM studios at the University of Calgary in Calgary, Alberta, Canada, located on the traditional territories of the people of the Treaty 7 region in Southern Alberta, which includes the Blackfoot Confederacy, comprised of the Siksika, Higani, and Guyana First Nations, as well as the Sutina First Nation and the Stony Nakoda, including the Chiniki, Bearspaw, and Wesley First Nations. The city of Calgary, also called Mokinsis in Blackfoot, is home to the Métis Nation of Alberta, Region 3. Your hosts are Gavin Cameron, Josh Goldstein, and Maureen Hebert. We're all on faculty here in the Department of Political Science. And just a caution before we get started, this podcast is for a mature audience and deals with topics, commentary, and depictions of events that some listeners may find difficult or distressing. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Oddities of Violence podcast. I'm your host, Maureen Hebert, and I'm joined, as usual, by my co-hosts, Gavin Cameron. Hi, Gavin. Hi, Maureen. And Josh Goldstein. Hi, Maureen. Hi, Gavin. Great to be in the studio with you again, Gavin and Josh. In this episode, we're probing the margins of genocide. We'll be having a conversation about empire, anxiety, and the oddities of extermination in the Roman Empire in the ancient world. Joining us today is one of our Oddities of Violence workshop contributors, Tristan Taylor. Tristan is a senior lecturer in classics and ancient history at the University of New England, Australia, and a research associate of the University of Tasmania, also in Australia. He holds a PhD in classics at Yale University and has been a visiting fellow in genocide studies at the Yale University Genocide Studies Program in 2013-14 and a visiting scholar in classics at the University of Texas, Austin in 2015. His research focuses on mass violence in the ancient world, particularly in Greece and Rome. He is the editor of A Cultural History of Genocide, The Ancient World in 2021 and co-editor with Professors Tracy Lemons and Ben Kiernan, of volume one of the Cambridge World History of Genocide, forthcoming this year. Now, although Tristan lives and works in Armadale, New South Wales in Australia, he's joining us today from London, England. Hello, Tristan.
1: Hello. Great to be here. Thank you for having me.
0: Thank you so much for joining us. We're really looking forward to our conversation. Now, before we dive into the nitty-gritty of your arguments and cases and analyses, I'd like to step back just a bit and get a sense of your academic origin story. I know that you didn't start your academic career in classics. In fact, you wrote your honors thesis on quota management in Australian fisheries. So how did you go from modern-day fisheries policies to the Romans and genocide in the ancient world?
1: Uh, well, the, the foundation stone is Indiana Jones, um, which I hired so many times on VHS to show my age that my parents banned me from, from hiring it, which imbued in me a great love of the ancient world. So as an undergraduate, I did a combined degree where I was studying law and fishing quotas and uh, and classics at, at the same time. Um, and while I studied law, I, I, uh, I developed a great interest in international law, humanitarian law, human rights law and I was was active in amnesty and things like that. And uh, when I, after some detours through uh, environmental policy and so on, went off to do my PhD in classics, as part of the program, we were required to take two courses outside our focus. So I did one on Renaissance epic poetry, and uh, browsing the course catalogue, I came across one on genocide. Mm. And that sort of seemed to mesh with my interest in human rights law and international law and history, because it was taught in the, the history programme. And during that course, I was reading a book called American Holocaust that was about the colonisation of South America. Mm. But one of my North American colleagues took some offence to the title. He didn't know what the content was. And uh, he said, well, killing and enslaving 7 million Gauls That's a Holocaust. Mm. And it started me thinking, well, um, what is the status of of genocide in the ancient world? How do people think about it? And the particular example he was talking about was uh, of Caesar's conquest in Gaul. And uh, so I started uh, looking into that and gave a paper at Yale at at my PhD program um, about Caesar's genocide in Gaul, um, arguing that he did in fact, do it.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, so that is a really and it sort of
1: sat on the back burner for a while as I finished my PhD. Sorry, go on.
0: I was just gonna say that is a really interesting way to kind of get into genocide studies. But continue on. Go ahead.
1: Uh sat on the back burner for a while and then after I finished my PhD and when I was uh I first, my first academic position was teaching in a law school and I was looking for some a research project that would uh meld of my legal interests with my, my law, with my historical interests and uh that that particular project leapt out to me as and uh it sort of has gone from there and I've been I've been working on it now for some time uh leading to the the two edited volumes which include one of them does include a paper on, on Caesar in law. so That has its genesis right back in that graduate school paper at a lunchtime seminar series.
0: Wow. That is an excellent and super interesting trajectory. I think a good lesson to all young academics that you don't have to have it all planned out from beginning to end to end up with a really fascinating career. So let's turn now to your topic at hand here. So, to orient our listeners who may not know, could you tell us a bit about how the Roman Republic and then the Roman Empire came to be the hegemonic power in the Mediterranean world?
1: Oh, that's a long story. Uh, <laughs> so uh, Rome's Rome's story of expansion begins in peninsular Italy, where through a series of alliances and war, it gradually expands um, what it calls its imperium, which is where we get the modern word empire. And what the Romans are interested in. At that stage, is isn't necessarily directly controlling territory. It's about people owing obedience to the Romans, and in particular, uh, providing them with uh, money and or manpower to help them fight wars. Uh, eventually, they uh, come into conflict with Carthage, which was the other major power in the Western Mediterranean in the island of Sicily. And this sparks, a, this is what becomes the first Punic War in the, the early third century BCE. Rome wins, Rome acquires um, Sicily as its first overseas, like, possession, if you will, that it governs directly through a governor. And it gradually, always it claims in self-defense, develops allies, these allies come to conflict, Rome intervenes, a war occurs, and gradually its power expands throughout um, the eastern Mediterranean as well. Initially, it emerges into Greece and claims for itself to be the liberator of Greece, and with great ceremony proclaims um, that uh, Greece is now free from the Macedonian kingdoms that have, have ruled it since Alexander. But as the as the, the Greek leagues and city-states fight with each other, Rome intervenes more and more and eventually brings Greece under to govern into its um uh, domain and uh It receives a bequest of what is essentially most of modern day Turkey from it, the king of the Pergamines who who dies and bequeaths it to Rome. Mm. And of course, this brings it into this territory, brings it into conflict with other uh, uh, former Hellenistic kingdoms. Those are the various successors of Alexander the Great. Uh, Now, in the way Rome projects itself, it is always acting in defense of itself or its allies. And in the way Rome thinks about itself, Uh, Its great success is due to the fact that they are the most pious of people in the Mediterranean and the gods favor uh, not only Rome itself, but Rome's acquisition of this uh, domain. But it doesn't always govern directly. It's um, sort of the the, the very later conception of the, the empire governing through provinces and governors develops very piecemeal. Its initial concern is essentially, do people respect Rome's power? Uh, or not do they and do they obey Rome's requests or not? And the final domino to fall is uh Egypt, the last of the Ptolemies Cleopatra in the you know anyone who's read Shakespeare or seen the Elizabeth Taylor, Richard Burton film uh, knows <laughs> knows what happens there. So so it uh, Rome's projection of what it's doing and Rome, what Rome's actually doing. So they often very conveniently make an alliance when it's very clear that their ally is about to come into conflict with someone else, Mm. and that gives Rome the justification to intervene, but still the idea that they're just acting in self-defence or defence of their their allies, because they're such pious and moral and upright people. Um, So this this process takes quite a a long time. So um, I'm talking about a, a couple of centuries between uh, the, the victory over Carthage in the, the, the First Punic War and sort of uh, 20 b the, the 30s BCE, when they uh, finally acquire Egypt. And various other parts are added on over the imperial period, but really, Rome is the dominant force in the Mediterranean by sort of the mid second century BCE. BC,
0: so that is a perfect kind of setup for your particular contribution to our workshop. So you focus on specific cases of violence across centuries of conflict and warfare during the Roman period. As you kind of alluded to, uh, this includes the Punic Wars between Rome and Carthage and the persecution many centuries later of Christian and Manichaean communities by Rome. So what were the central events in the history of these cases? And how did these fit into what you've already kind of described to us, these larger background events of conflict within the Roman Republic and then the Roman Empire?
1: Yeah, so two two important background things to have in mind um, in in this is, first of all, um, the broader concept of how ancient empires worked, where they didn't so much uh, rely on having Military power in a particular everywhere all at once. They relied on their reputation. Mm. So, um, or either the Latin term is exestematio, and the Romans talk about the exestematio, which is where we get estimation mm. in, in English of the empire. And if the the empire's reputation is harmed, if its honor is harmed, then that can reduce its standing, and it can encourage people to revolt. Mm. So it's very important that. Rome, even though it can't deploy violence everywhere all at once to support its power, if anyone ever diminishes its reputation or challenges it, they have to respond uh, decisively, if you will, which means with a very large amount of force and violence to that so that their reputation is maintained and other people are deterred from revolting. So that kind of thinking underlies um, a lot of what Rome does. So if uh, an ally rebels or betrays Rome in some form, they will respond with significant violence. That usually means destroying the city, massacring the men, enslaving the women and children, and so on. Um, And uh, so that's a a very important facet of the way that they think. And it's not just unique to them. So um, I understand you talked about Milos recently in another podcast. We did. That's very much how Athens is thinking. in relation to melos um, this little island how do they stand outside the empire uh, we need to make an example of them or else and this is how thucydides the historian of that speaks about it um, but also the romans firmly believe that their success is intimately connected with their their piety and a, and a great example of this is an anecdote from the the first punic war the first time Rome and carthage come into conflict when Rome acquires Sicily as its first overseas possession or province. And there's a a general who um, wants to go into a naval battle. He wants to get great glory in victory. Um, But of course, they they need to take the omens before they have battle. And the omens in this case are sacred chickens. Do the sacred chickens eat or not? And the sacred chickens aren't hungry. And uh, he's told, well, the chickens aren't eating. It's a bad omen. We shouldn't go into battle. And in sort of a Mary Antoinette fashion, he goes well. Let them drink and throws the sacred chickens into the sea. <laughs> goes into battle and loses horrendously. And this is kind of this moral tale. Well, he ignored the gods. If you, if we Romans don't ignore the gods, um, so if we uh, we always need to keep them them on side. And each of these two limbs, if you will, uh, the need to maintain the 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 empire's uh, reputation and. The, the fact that the success is built on divinity, those two limbs explain the two separate, you know, vastly separated by times and incidents here, the, the persecution of the Christians on the one hand and Carthage on the other. But there's an extra sort of twist, if you will, to Carthage. Now, the, the way in which the Romans so the Romans fought two big wars with Carthage. The first one they won; they got Sicily. The second one they won eventually, but only after Hannibal had rampaged. You know, this is with Hannibal, the elephants over the Alps, famous story. Rampaged through Italy for many years, and eventually Rome wins. But there is a there's a lingering uh, feeling of uh, humiliation, which is an important mm. uh, contributing factor in, in genocide. Uh, generally, the psychological motivations for genocide and also this, this fear of the Carthaginians, because no one had challenged Rome so successfully, as the, and no one will until um, the 3rd century, nearly 400 years later, 3rd century CE. Um, but Rome won that war and imposed humiliating conditions on Carthage and disempowered Carthage significantly. And their justification for going to war with Carthage was Carthage breached one of the conditions of this peace treaty. And that was they made war with their neighbour, the the Numidian kingdom, without Rome's permission. And part of Rome, the the treaty was Carthage sort of lost that um, autonomy to go to war. They had to ask Rome's permission. Carthage lost, by the way. (laughs) they, they, They fought this kingdom and they lost. But the Romans used that as a pretext for making war on Carthage. And if you look at the way that the conflict escalates, the Carthaginians capitulate to every ultimatum Rome gives. It's like, give us hostages. Rome gives them hostages. Um, disarm yourselves. They disarm themselves. Um, and everything Rome asks, until Rome asks, uh, well, OK, you've done all these other things. Our last request is that you, dis- you abandon your city and move 10 miles inland which is the sort of the the antithesis of what Carthage is. Carthage is a a port city. It's a a major emporium, uh, relies on trading, relies on connections. It It just won't be Carthage anymore, not to mention the abandoning the shrines and the tombs and so on that would go with abandoning your city. So it's clear Rome wanted Carthage to end. And the contemporary historian Polybius tells us that not only did Rome want this to happen, but they'd wanted it to happen for some time, or at least uh, a faction in the Senate had wanted this, embodied in particular by uh, a very cantankerous fellow, Cato the Elder, who idealizes uh, a sort of past that possibly never was about Rome. Um, So he legendarily ends every speech saying, Carthage must be destroyed, that is sometimes rendered in today as Carthago Delenda Est, but we only have the only historians who tell us about it are in Greek, and they use a different different phrase, which is Carthage should not be um, the way they render it. Uh, So on the one hand, it seems to fit with the the traditional model of Roman behavior, which is someone has defied Rome, insulted Rome's um, uh, honor, by breaking the treaty with them. So Rome is reacting to that, uh, as they do. Um, But on the other hand, there is that Carthage capitulates. They do everything, Rome says. On the other hand, there is the fact that um, Rome persists in this, what appears to be a determination to destroy Carthage, um, and has had that long before the treaty breach exists. So this is being driven by other factors in addition to those those usual motivations for such violence, which are retribution and and exemplarity, if you will, making an example of someone to deter others, uh, conspicuous destruction. So it both does and does not fit the mold, if you will. Now, if we fast forward 300 years, so from 146 BCE to the mid-3rd century CE, we find Rome in a crisis, the Roman Empire, in a crisis it has never faced before. This crisis is both external, they're under constant pressure from invasions across their main uh, northern borders on the Rhine and the Danube. Uh, they're having difficulty expelling the people who invade, whereas previously, if such invasions happened, they were short lived and easily repulsed. And they're also under pressure in the east from uh, the Persians who have supplanted the Parthians as Rome's eastern neighbour across the Euphrates, who are invading deep into what they called Asia Minor, what we would now call Turkey. Um, So Rome is having this military crisis. At the same time, it is having a a deep political crisis where there is uh, a lot of what we call usurpers, people who rise up in rebellion against the emperor, some of whom form, at times, breakaway empires. So Gaul, Spain, um, and Britain are controlled by someone different from the person who's ruling in Rome, and we find the Eastern Empire is broken away as well. Eventually, this is, all, this is brought back together, but you have this prolonged feeling of crisis prompts uh, several emperors to believe what's gone wrong is we've lost the support of the gods, so gods who've supported the empire all this time, who have lost their support, why is that? Or well, how do we restore that? And it begins with um, a couple of emperors who issue things requiring everyone to sacrifice in the empire. And if you don't sacrifice, it's on pain of death. And of course, this catches people, like the Christians in particular, who cannot sacrifice um, those ones are very short-lived in the mid third century, but towards the end, when we have a, an emperor Di- Diocletian, who uh, to a large extent restores the the stability of the empire, um, he and he divides the empire in four effectively. There are now four emperors rather than one to try to manage everything. Um, this is when we have the the Great Persecution, as it's known, um, and uh, this again this is a bit more intense, it has destruction of uh, churches, it is burning of books, uh, as well as the requirement that everyone sacrifice. And it seems to be intimately connected with this idea of restoring the gods' support for the Roman Empire, and for the Roman emperors in particular. Um, and at the same time, as the Christians who, who get sort of the most focus in the sources, uh, another group, the Manichaeans, um, are also subject to a similar sort of persecution, uh, and they are very intimately connected with, um, the, or seem to be connected with the Persian Empire, with the time are causing Rome a lot of uh, grief, if you will, on, on their eastern frontier. Uh, So you've you've got, on the one hand, with Carthage, this question of the empire's um, reputation, but at the same time, I think some other things bubbling away under the surface. And with the Christians, you have this this idea that the Roman Empire is buttressed by the consensus of the gods. It's been lost somehow. We need to restore it. Um, We need everyone to sacrifice for the well-being of the empire. Uh, There are these groups who won't do that maybe they're the cause of the loss of the divine support? Sorry, it's quite a long answer, but I'm, I'm not sure it can be uh, a lot more <laughs> compact.
0: <laughs> it was a very big question. So that, that really, I think, kind of sets us up for a bit of a drill down into some of these in just a second. But before we do that, since we're talking about genocide, we need to make a little diversion, of course, to talk about this highly contested, sometimes politically charged concept. So Could you tell the audience a bit about what genocide is and how it emerged?
1: Yes. Well, uh, what genocide is, is a a contested term. So if one looks in a standard textbook, one will find over 20 definitions.
0: Yes. In one particular textbook, there's like a two-page thing with all the definitions in one place.
1: Yeah, yeah. So if anyone wants to, uh, Adam Jones' Genocide: A Comprehensive Introduction, I think he compiles all the definitions that that he's aware of uh, there, and has that nice table. In its origin, though, uh, we we go back actually before the Second World War, and the the we can identify a very specific creator of the concept in a Polish jurist named Raphael Lemkin. And uh, before World War II, he is, um, he's a very keen student of history, and he has in mind uh, initially the, the treatment of the Armenians in the Ottoman Empire and, and other historical examples as well. And he tries to have enshrined in international law two crimes, barbarism and vandalism. One is the, the destruction of a people, and the other is the destruction of their of their culture. So destroying sacred texts, destroying um uh, places of worship or or other um uh, places of or other aspects of social practice associated that are constitutive of a of a group. And so that's his initial conception. And then as World War II evolves, during World War II, he publishes a book called Um uh,
0: Axis Rule and Axis
1: Occupied powers, Europe. Yeah. Yes. The Axis, Axis Powers in Occupied Europe, in which he uh, proclaims the term genocide, which he defines essentially as a, a, a systematic attack on, on a particular group, not only the, the biological continuity, but the, the various social practices as well. And uh, he uses as his example, of course, the actions of the the Axis powers and after World War II he pushes for the creation of an international crime of genocide Uh, and it's it's used by one of the prosecutors as a term in the Nuremberg trials although um, generally speaking that's not uh, it's crimes against humanity that is the term that is used there and this leads to the the convention on the prevention of the, the crime of genocide in the late 1940s, and interestingly, at the in the preamble to that convention, it, it recognizes or uh, states that this is a, a crime that has been ex- in existence for a long period of history, and it's it's actually a post 1940s development. The idea that genocide is a particular product of modernity, but in that convention, which is If we want to think about definitions that are widely accepted, this is really the one that, that if you will, matters, because all the other ones, all the sociological definitions that we find, um, uh, while they address various shortcomings of this legal definition, um, owe their origin and derivative from this particular one. And this is the one that matters when international political discourse and that you know, def- essentially defines genocide as um, certain acts, killing, imposing conditions of life that um, will, will lead to death, um, transferring people between one group and another. Um, says all of these are acts that are committed with an intention to destroy uh, a, an ethnic, national, religious, uh, racial group as such. So it's acts. Essentially, it's the intentional destruction of a group of people as a group of people, is what genocide is. And um, there are various arguments that exist uh, about what those groups should be. So, should we include social groups, which aren't included in the the definition? Should we include political groups that aren't included in the, the UN convention definition? Should we include things other than biological destruction? So Lemkin originally imagined attacks on culture as an essential component of genocide, but the convention itself focuses purely on killing people, us, killing the people, or destroying the people, genetic destruction, if you will. Should we include what is sometimes called cultural genocide in that? And that's where the other definitions expand and conflate. So some are much stricter than the UN Convention in only focusing on killing. So the UN Convention includes other things. Um, uh, most are more expansive in terms of the groups of people that they they would include in, in genocide. But the essential nature is the destruction of a group of people as a group of people. So the reason they're being destroyed is because they are members of that group um, rather than... You know, there can be additional reasons. You know, you can be targeting that group for different reasons. The convention is completely agnostic on why you want that group to be destroyed. Some more recent definitions try to constrain that. They try to say it, should be for an ideological purpose, for example. But the convention doesn't, is agnostic as to that. Um, so that's where it, it comes from. It emerges from the, nine, the, the wake of World War II. But in terms of its intellectual history, its founder imagines it as a transhistorical phenomenon, and indeed he started writing but did not finish um, a history of genocide that would include chapters on uh, Carthage, I believe, and Gaul, and um, the treatment of the Christians and and others, other uh, historical events as well. But we've only got his notes on that.
2: That's great. Uh, that's great, Tristan. And one one of the themes that emerges from your discussion very clear and and really gripping of the expansion of of Rome, the place and applicability of the idea of genocide to some of Rome's uh, interactions, the requirements of obedience uh, that Rome asks of its. Uh, conquered peoples is is a deep sense of the division between Rome on the one hand and these other groups as simply foreign on the the other. But I wonder if you could talk about one feature of Rome that I think may uh, surprise some of our uh, contemporary listeners is the simultaneous radical openness that Rome had to inclusion, to military, political participation of individuals from these groups. So rather than this strict separation, we have simultaneously this inclusion and openness rather than just exclusion. So could you just say a little bit about how these two elements of of Rome can exist together?
1: Yes, it is, it is fascinating that Rome is um, uh, an extremely, you know, perhaps one of the most pluralist empires there have been. Uh, so, at Rome, uh, if you're a slave, you could be freed, and if you were freed, you became a citizen. And th- there were some constrictions on your rights, but your children would be unconstrained. They would be full citizens, no matter what your origin had been as a slave. And although the, the process is, is slow. Gradually, the political participation in the very elite echelons of the Roman Empire, so the Roman Senate, and even the Roman Emperor himself uh, gets expanded out throughout the empire. So you have empires from Spain, you have emperors from uh, North Africa, you, you end up with an emperor from uh, Arabia. Um, so uh, Rome is in a way that, uh, for example, athens was not is a much more open society open to expansion open to expanding its citizen citizen base and uh for a long time offers citizenship as uh, an incentive to elites to help run the empire for rome and eventually in the early 3rd century gives citizenship to to pretty much everyone within within the empire so so you have that on on the one hand that doesn't mean that there aren't uh cultural conflicts, cultural anxieties uh, among the elite at at the expansion. Uh, So um, when Caesar wants to enfranchise people from newly conquered Gaul, there is some resistance in the Roman Senate to this notion Um, in the the first century BCE. But uh, alongside this this openness, uh, nonetheless, Rome is very capable of identifying peoples and groups of peoples as other, if you will, in, in scare quotes, um, and, and separating them out. So if one reads, a great example here is there's a, a geographer named Strabo writing in the 1st century BC. He writes about all the, the all or goes, does a tour of the Mediterranean writing about them. And throughout, uh, a constant theme is the contrast between those who live in the plains and those who live in cities, and those who live in the hills those living in the plains and those in the cities are peace-loving wonderful civilized people and those that live in the hills are barbarians and scary people uh and and these contrasts exist um so rome is capable of identifying groups as as other uh it it doesn't have the same sort of um overtones we associate with what we might call scientific racism again mm-hmm. in scare quotes yeah. that we encounter in, in the modern period uh, it's very um sort of pragmatic there's there's nothing about these other rings that has a logic of destruction about them these people are x therefore these people have to be destroyed but nonetheless the romans clearly have uh, ideas of hierarchy associated very strongly with urbanism um uh, and we find that a lot in interactions with people on the on the margins of the empire doesn't quite apply to Carthage, which which was a very uh, it's, it's not a and indeed we find this with most um uh, societies and the way they other and the way they inflict mass violence There's not actually a very good logic to it all. you find it's often hypocritical and idiosyncratic and self-contradictory and so on. Um, so the the way they identify Carthage and come down on, come down on it and the stereotypes and so on that they use about Carthage um aren't to do with that urban civilized hill barbarian divide it's, it's something something different um but this acceptance does does not exclude intolerance if you will that's fantastic exist all all the time they're together
3: Okay, thank you, Tristan. So why do you think Rome felt the need to eliminate Carthage when other imperial competitors to Rome, such as the Persians, which you've mentioned, uh, were not? So why is Cato the Elder, or his equivalent, not suddenly calling for the destruction of other adversaries to Rome?
1: Yeah, I think that's it's a very interesting constellation of factors that come together. So I think a key component is um, the Second Punic War, uh, Hannibal rampaging through Italy uh, and the psychological impact that had on Rome. So uh, the Carthaginians are viewed as cruel and untrustworthy that that these labels could be applied to the Romans as well is, is you know irrelevant <laughs> So uh, and and that lingers that the Carthaginians cannot be trusted. so the the Romans have a, a saying uh, Punica Fides. Punic good faith, which is essentially the opposite. It's completely untrustworthy. Mm. Um, so the Carthaginians have that stereotype attached to them. Um, and that the, the Persians don't, don't have at this time, and mm. all, all the Parthians don't have at this time, and won't really acquire until uh, ever, in fact, which I think is um, goes into... Uh, we were talking about Roman prejudices, and one of them is that people from the East, which would include the Persians, are viewed as somehow soft and a bit weak, Mm. uh, not trustworthy, and this kind of prejudice leads to many horrendously uh, misguided enterprises where the Romans try to conquer Persia and and lose uh, because they they, they have the stereotype about the East being weak. But uh, I think what it is with Carthage is um, that they, they have this memory of humiliation at the hands of Carthage. They have this stereotype of the Carthaginians in particular as untrustworthy, as cruel. And this idea that lingers not amongst everyone, so there are opponents to this, that as long as Carthage stands, Rome will never be safe. And Rome never really develops that idea about anyone else and i think it's because until the late empire no one ever really challenges rome like carthage did so i think that is what is and we, we have we have some fragments of speeches given by cato uh, to the senate urging them to just, to destroy carthage and those are the those are the kind of ideas that that linger there, that that carthage can't be trusted
3: Thank you. Uh, and you've talked uh, earlier about uh, Gaul so, so as, as a sort of another potential uh, example, so Caesar's uh, Gallic Wars. Um, what role do you see violence playing within Rome's management of its empire? Um, and, and so within that, how unusual are these wars of elimination within, within Rome's uh, control of its possessions?
1: So wars of elimination are relatively rare, and that's because the whole way the Roman Empire functions is that Rome will exploit local elites um, to manage the empire for them. They're not interested. It's it's not Laban's realm. It's not it's not like the Nazi Third Reich Empire. They're not driving people out to implant Romans. Uh, certainly, that that happens. A bit, more often actually in Italy, interestingly enough. Um, there are some uh, sort of expulsion things that happen in North Italy. But, um, and yes, they do settle colonia, which is where we get the word colony from, in, in conquered territories. But that's not the main game. The main way the Romans control their empire is through co-opting local elites. So it's not in their interest to eliminate people because they want to exploit them for the taxes and other and resources so they're they're relatively rare and when we find these things happening in in caesar for example with so there are i think three main events where that that have this sort of eliminationist aspect two of them are directed towards um tribes of people germanic tribes of people from the north of the rhine where he does he crosses the rhine he makes it deal about it he has a very extraordinarily long description of a bridge that he builds if you're interested in descriptions of bridges uh,
0: <laughs> but
1: he's but he's not really interested in establishing rome beyond the rhine and um uh, 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 andrew Rigsby has argued in a very good book that uh he tries to categorize that the germans as in fact unsuitable for incorporation within the empire and uh, when he describes the Germans, he describes them through negative description. So everything the Germans are not. So they do not farm. They do not do this. They do not do that. In other words, they do not do anything that we do. And they don't like authority, so they're not really very good at slaves. So, um, so that's where most of his elimination as violence happens is against these peoples very heavily identified as other, in an area he's not interested in conquering. He's interested in displaying Roman power, but he's not interested in um, incorporation in the way that he is in, in Gaul. Uh, so it, it's a very different dynamic to uh, what happens in uh, in relation to Carthage, I think. Uh, although Carthage also um, is uh, The city is demolished, the land is cursed. So they're not interested in incorporating that in the empire either. It's it's a very symbolic act of destruction that we know actually resonated throughout the Mediterranean. Um, The historian, contemporary Polybius, it's great to have contemporaries, which happens so rarely. But he talks about how there are differential reactions. People are talking in the Mediterranean about the destruction of Carthage. Some say Rome was right to do it, and others say they weren't. So it's a it's an interesting very interesting piece of um observation there it's right a observation
2: that that's i think that's really great and that that takes us maybe to the case of the christians and the manichaeans because one of the themes that you're also bringing out here is on the one hand a kind of deep stubbornness on the part of of rome a kind of fixed sense of where the Carthaginians stand with regard to Rome, but then with regard to other people's, a little bit more kind of flexibility. You're out right now, but you might be, uh, but you you might be in. and and maybe that's exemplified or you can tell us a, a bit about that with the with the Christians in in particular, this movement from out of the empire to the very religion of the emperor, uh him himself. So could you just tell us a little bit about how Christians and Manichaeans come to be on the outside, the objects of persecution, disdain, and then the great movement to being the the greatest of insiders, the very religion of the of the
1: emperor himself. Yes, so the The outsider is perhaps easier to explain than the insider Mm. part of that that story. Uh, So because um, as the the empire progresses, the connection between the emperor and the divine becomes more pronounced. And the emperor cult um, more spread throughout the the empire. Uh, A group of people who are new, the Romans hate new things so their term for a a revolution right um isn't revolutio which you think it would be it's nowhere res a new thing like a new thing is a terrible thing (laughs) so the christians are are new whereas uh, jews who are also monotheistic uh, have been there forever so they've been there for a very long time so they have this sort of antiquity supporting them so the romans are um, much more tolerant of of Jews, whereas Christians are new. Christians proselytize in a way that Jews do not, Mm -hmm. and Christians do not sacrifice to the emperor. Um, So it's easy to see how they end up on the outside.
2: Okay, but you said the story of how they end up on the inside Mm -hmm. is, uh, is there, obviously there's a story to be told, but is there a kind of... uh, logic to rome that explains it or it's just idiosyncratic
1: to constantine Uh, i think that the 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 logic such as it is um, we can root in religious thinking Mm. so um, at the time so those unfamiliar with the story the the story of the the transformation of rome from a persecuting state to one where Christianity becomes the the accepted religion of the elite, has as its 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 crux, its turning point, the Emperor Constantine, who in the traditional story has a revelation before he goes into to battle. He sees a sign in this in the sky, in this around the sun, in this you will conquer. He has a dream where where Christ appears to him. Mm. He gets his soldiers to paint a, a Christian symbol on their shield. They go into battle and they win, and henceforth. Uh, Constantine is the supporter of of Christianity and gradually uh, the empire through his sons and and following on becomes christianized as well with the support from the emperor the the logic that supports that is the idea this idea that goes back in fact to the very foundation of the the empire itself with the idea that the gods are supporting the empire that is why Rome is successful um, our crisis is because um, the, the gods have stopped supporting us. So Constantine has his vision. Um, he goes into battle under the sign of the Christian God, and he wins. Well, that must mean that the Christian God is is the God that's the important God, and is the is the one that will ensure my success. And he keeps winning. So he not only beats uh, Maxentius, the uh, person who's, in, who's then controlling Rome, even though Rome is more symbolic than an actual political capital now, eventually he'll fight a war in the east against another one of his co-emperors, the Quineus. he'll win that as well. And um, he'll be the first emperor to unite the empire for about 40 years under one rule. So he, he's got all this success that suggests uh, this god is... His support, um, and is is the right God to be behind him. So that's that's the the logic that um, dictates it. The sort of question that remains, and perhaps can never be answered, is why did Constantine pick Christianity? Mm. Um, when it was at that stage it was under persecution less so in the western part of the roman world which is where constantine was so spain gaul italy and so on it was more vigorously prosecuted in the east greece turkey um uh, the levant and so on Uh, so why did he pick that did he really have a vision this this is something we'll never, unless we can interview him, mm. which of course we can't, we'll, we'll never really know. But that's the story he told. That was his explanation. But this there's actually a long history of tropes of emperors having visions and then having success. Uh, so um, the way the story is told actually fits with a traditional narrative. Does it mean the narrative is wrong? We don't know, but... Um, that that is the intriguing question. I think we can't answer them. Ah, uh, that's no, that's very really
2: good. One one quick uh, 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 follow up about the relationship between Christians and Manichaeans, and the only place that that I know the Manichaeans from is from Augustine's Confessions, and the way that he speaks about the Manichaeans, as, as I'm sure you know, is as a kind of false church, but but as if they were Christians, or at least that's uh how how I read it is was Augustine's view Manichaeans, as a kind of false Christians or he comes to realize as false christians was was that a widely held view or is that a view that's particular to uh, Augustine and maybe Augustine looking back on his own journey to Catholicism? No I don't
1: it so he's speaking from a Christian perspective. So that may well be the the Christian perspective. So you 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 have the Figurmani, you have conflict between good and evil. Um, That's very much part of Manichaeism. But uh, I think from the perspective of non-Christians, Manichaeism is it's it's no, it's not. The the problem with it isn't it's a false uh, form of Christianity. It's uh, this other new strange religion. Closely connected in, in Roman eyes with the Persian Empire, which is which is the, the problematic aspect of it. Um uh, that uh, sets it apart from traditional religion and associates it with one of Rome's chief opponents. So I think the Augustine perspective is wouldn't have been the reason, for example, Diocletian first turned on the Manichaeans and then, because when we look at the persecution, the Manichaeans come first and and then the Christians are the, the target of of Diocletian's um, persecution.
2: Ah, uh, that's great. Well, it's always it's always good to keep in mind who is talking and their own particular projects when they are relating uh, relating history to to us.
0: So, when we think about the attack on the Christians and the Manichaeans by the Romans, uh, you suggest that this mostly took the form of cultural destruction and execution why was it that rome chose these particular methods of group destruction
1: well i think rome given the motivation for what they were doing which was we want everyone to be you know on board sacrificing for the empire um that if actually every christian had just said okay i'll sacrifice now then they didn't necessarily have an interest in destroying them as a group so in that sense it was very different from the holocaust where you know, there's nothing a jewish person could do a jewish couldn't convert jewish person couldn't convert uh, to avert being killed or sent into hard labor or whatever other terrible thing the nazis had in mind for that particular person um so uh it's it's, it's different from from that but uh because the the practice was so antithetical to what the Romans wanted then. Destroying mm. the churches and the books and everything was an essential component of removing that that group. Um, so the, the first focus was on um, removing the, the practices constituted of the group. And then the last phase was insu- trying to ensure that they sacrificed for the good of the empire.
0: So, would you say here then that there are sort of qualitative differences between methods of destruction and motivations for that destruction between ancient and modern genocides, or are there some points of of similarity between the two of them?
1: I, I think there are points of similarity you can you can see. Um, so it uh, so but not necessarily across every instance. So uh, I, th- I think, f- uh, for example, in relation to the destruction of Carthage, you can see a number of touch points with modern genocides. Um, so there is the, the, the aspect of humiliation mm. that the Romans felt at the hands of the Carthaginians, which is a, a strong feature amongst the number of, of genocides. You find that in the Holocaust, uh, you find that in uh, Rwanda as well. Um, and there is the feeling of existential anxiety that you get with uh, Carthage, get with the Christians as well. And with Carthage, you have another anxiety that's bubbling away beneath the surface as well, which is about cultural change within the empire. Mm. So Rome is changing rapidly as a result particularly of contact with the not so much with carthage but with the the greek east the greek speaking east it, it's bringing a lot of cultural change it's bringing a lot a lot of affluence to rome that uh, sit uneasily with Rome's vision of itself as an austere society focused on citizen farmers. Now, you've got people with an awful lot of money who aren't ploughing the field and then going off to fight. They're, they're living in lives of luxury, and that causes some existential angst. Um, so you've got concern about societal change bubbling away beneath the surface as well, although the target of that is not the perceived cause of that change. Um, so. In the relation to Carthage, you see these touch points with modern motivations. In relation to the other, so we talked briefly about Milos, We talked about Caesar in in Gaul. Um, there, the it's there's a little more distance, I think, because a lot of those factors you find in modern instances aren't there. You certainly have some uh, prejudice of some form, which is a key component of of. Um, of, of genocide but you have uh, less sense of existential angst associated with it it's, it's much more muted there is the always the lingering idea that if you don't respond with force to insults the emperor's reputation it's going to bring about disaster but it, it's um i think it's much more muted in other instances than it is in relation to to carthage and um, in relation to the Christians, um, again, you you have the idea that it can be avoided. It's, it's not seen as uh, somehow inherent in the people. So the destruct- their destruction can be avoided if only they do what we want them to do, which is, you know, this is not uh, an affordance given to the Tutsi. It's not an affordance given to, to Jewish or Romani people. Um, but it is something that that is afforded there. So there are, you can draw a Venn diagram and, and create overlaps, but, the, but there are also differentiations as well, which is not surprising given the, the millennia of of, of uh, different difference between and cultural change that has happened between the, the periods of time.
0: Exactly, exactly. So we are are basically at the end of our time. And so I, I just want to conclude just very quickly in just a few sentences. Um, With one final question, what is the biggest misconception about mass violence in the ancient Western world that you would like to dispel for our listeners?
1: Uh, Well, I think there are two. I can be quick. One is that the genocide did happen. There is intentional group destruction. Mm. The second point is that although mass violence could be celebrated as the destruction of Carthage was and Christians were, um, execution were a matter of public display. Mm -hmm. Nonetheless, it did create enough of a feeling of concern that they felt a need to justify it. It wasn't taken as a matter of course. Uh, So I've already mentioned the example of Carthage and the different reactions to it. And the reason the Romans didn't just destroy Carthage, Polybius makes clear, is they were waiting for a pretext, something they thought would justify the destruction of the city in the wider view of the, the world in which they they lived. And Polybius tells us that some people bought the Roman justification and other people did not. So, um, and with the destruction of the Christians as well, there, there, there was a need to justify this. That um, So it could, that... Um, It's not just a matter, of course.
0: Well, that is an excellent place to end our discussion. Thank you so much, Tristan, for joining us. It's been a great conversation and we really appreciate you being here. Thank you so much.
2: Thank you. Great. Thanks very much, Tristan. Great, uh, great conversation. Thanks, Tristan.
0: Tristan Taylor will be here at the University of Calgary on June 9th and 10th, 2023, for our Oddities of Violence workshop made possible through funding by the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada. If you want to know more about Tristan's work on Rome's turn to genocidal violence, drop by the workshop in person or watch it live streamed. Details will be on our Oddities of Violence website. You have been listening to the Oddities of Violence podcast. Our podcast is produced and edited by Alejandra Vivas. Thank you so much, Alejandra with support from the great team at CJSW. Join us for our next episode when we turn to oddities of violence in the modern era. We'll be looking again at the margins of genocide, but this time in Cambodia under the Khmer Rouge in the 1970s. We'll be looking at how and why starvation was central to that genocide. Our guests then will be James Tyner from Kent State University in Ohio in the United States. Your host will be me again, Maureen Hebert, Thanks for listening, everyone. Until next time.